From our conversations working together for a while, uh, your initial background in music was coming out of a jazz environment, you know, with your yeah. father and then in studies. How do you go from, let's say, a, a thorough upbringing in that world to what you just worked on here as a solo concept? Well, I think, you know, like I, I did grow up in a jazz background, but I was just realizing that the, the jazz background I grew up in is not what I think most people uh, equate with a jazz education now. Mm-hmm. What know? was it? Um, it was playing in a big band with older big band players um, from kind of the last generation from Stan Kenton and Woody Herman and Toshiko Akiyoshi's bands and this real kind of pro touring big bands um, that kind of ended in the 70s, really. Mm-hmm. And these were the last last guys from that. And, it, and where was this? This was in Oregon um, on the coast. Okay. And there's there's still a tradition, although it's waning now, of territory bands in Oregon. Um, okay. You know, there certain bands that played certain parts of the state and they always played and guys ran them. And there were different bands that played in Portland than there were that played on the coast. My dad had a band on the coast, and that was like the band for that area. And it was made up of all these guys that had, um, for different reasons, either were in the army with my dad and then went on to play with the Kenton Band and the Woody Herman Band, or they had been in those bands and retired to the coast. Um, And that education is really different um, because they didn't come up through college. Mm -hmm. They didn't come up through a codified, this is how you play jazz language. They all learned kind of on the job. And what you gain from that is different than what you gain from a codified jazz program um, that we know now, which is, you know, like I was making the joke about it earlier and make sure and play your thirds and sevenths and like the technical graph of how you play changes. Um, So my early stuff was more about uh, understanding the role that you have within a piece of music and to move the energy forward in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So it was less about, you know, this is a C7 chord, so you need to make sure and play these pitches. It was more about like, you have eight bars, the people are dancing. When you start your eight bars, we're at this level. When you finish your eight bar- bars, the band's gonna come in here. If you stay here, if you keep going flat, this is gonna sound super weird when we come in. So make sure you build over this very short period of time, and then you start to figure out ways to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Then when I got a jazz education in college, which is great, and I'm glad I got it. I don't, when I talk about it, I don't mean to like belittle that kind of Mm -hmm. education because I think it's really important. And where'd you go? I went to University of Oregon for my undergrad um, and University of Denver for my master's degree, both pretty conservative schools, jazz-wise, but the the University of Oregon, when I got there, was uh, all of a sudden there was a class that of these kids I'd grown up with that grew up the same way I did. Mm-hmm. So that meaning they played in big bands when they were 12, 13, playing gigs, mm-hmm. and they were buying records when they were 12 or 13. So, you know, we got to school at 17 and there were the other people coming in who were just buying their first 
like they were just buying Blue Train, for example, and we were listening to uh, cosmic music and the stuff with Alice because we'd already gone through all that shit. Like mm -hmm. we'd already heard Ornette and we'd already checked out Circle and because we just had had that jump. So when we got to school, it was we wanted to play free because that's where our Your listening were, was. Yeah. yeah, and really that's where our heads were coming from the big band thing because we were used to thinking in an abstract way about energy, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. about how many choruses of blues can you play, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I would say to the, um, to give the, the proper recognition, the professor there is a guy named Steve Owen, who hates that stuff. He was like a University of North Texas lab one rah-rah guy. Um, recognized that and the big band in that school just played free for four years we didn't play one chart wow. because he recognized that's what we were interested in that's what we had and and to his credit a lot of the students that came out um, went on to do interesting things um, and after the last one graduated he went right back to like Fad Jones Count Basie mm -hmm. and that we were kind of the last hmm. uh, class of those people so I the education was really bizarre in that way. Like, it, on one hand, it was very conceptual. And on the other hand, it was very, like, workman. You show up on time. You look good. You don't miss any notes. You play all four hours. You don't get drunk. You know, mm -hmm. like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... Those two things, I think, have informed what I've done. And a lot of people, you know, that I grew up in those bands with now are are playing professionally but everybody just went in a different mm -hmm. road this is the way i think that's how i took that information and moved forward whereas the some of the other players used that information and and put it through the lens of a real like jazz education became mm -hmm. straight ahead people mm -hmm. some people became composers mm -hmm. but everybody is you can tell they're still coming from this um relationship with the audience on one hand and keeping them dancing and also understanding energy flow before the technicality of, mm -hmm. of playing the instrument. And how would you say then, <clears throat> after these somewhat conservative, although open-minded uh, programs that you went through with jazz studies, uh, which I'm imagining the general focus in what you studied was more conventional playing as that music is taught now, uh, to get to these extended techniques and ideas about textural playing, sound-based playing, as opposed to like pitch-based or chorally or tonally-based, chord changes-based music. I mean, if you can describe, that's a pretty big, as far as like an outsider, that's a pretty large jump. Yeah. Well, the, In terms of material. The thing that happened for me is, there are a couple things I think that play into it. One is I, I, I won't use the term self-taught because I'm not sure that that applies, but I had trumpet teachers in school that had never had a trumpet student that wanted to play trumpet professionally hmm. which meant I came in with a screwed up embouchure and a lot of lacking technique and they never dealt with it because they were like well he's having fun he's playing gigs he'll never play after high school so we don't have to worry about it and then in college I had gotten to a level where they didn't want to screw with it because they were afraid they were going to mess something up and, but I had these severe limitations. I didn't have really an upper register. My sound was weird. I couldn't play that fast or loud. So, 
you know, I'd get into a college situation and you're with five people in the back row of a trumpet section and they can all walk up to a mic and scream and I couldn't do it. So I wanted to find new ways to create energy and and keep the energy moving when I couldn't play a triple high C and, you know, mm -hmm. a million sixteenth notes. Um, and that combined with, at the time, especially like a crippling social anxiety, just meant I stayed at home and thought about shit all the time. That's all I did was like think about how I could make music given the technical abilities I had um, that would mean something to people that wasn't this kind of... Plus, I, I just didn't like that. I didn't like the technical scream. I never liked like Clifford Brown. I was never that interested in Freddie Hubbard. I just, I liked things that were human and mm. I tried to figure out what that was for me and what, what ways I could use to build the energy mm -hmm. without doing it in the way that everybody else could do. And a lot of that came about with using my voice, not, not, not singing really, but like thinking about making the way I played sound, uh, sound like a human voice. And from that, some of those techniques started, you know, mm -hmm. half, like the speed of half foul stuff came out of that. But then I became really dissatisfied with the idea of the human singing voice, which I think is what we all default to. You know, we think, well, yeah, that person sounds like, sound like a singer. I, I don't want to sound like a singer. I, I like singers, but I also think it's, for me, the least interesting thing you can do with the voice. Mm. So I started thinking a lot about like, what are the other things we do with the voice? Well, we scream. Great. Okay. So that, that started to develop another set of extended techniques just to try and see if I could emulate sounds. Mm -hmm. And then that, that was too obvious. So a lot of the things became uh, size or laughing and then even down to really prosaic things like mumbling and speaking in different ways and having trying to emulate something that would be conversational meaning like you've got three or four or five or six things going on mm -hmm. at the same time like mm -hmm. people chattering and uh a lot of that just came out of that and after a while i wasn't even thinking about that it's just the way i heard music mm -hmm. now it's like i if I am singing over a tune on the radio, it sounds like the way I play. Like I, I just hear like, like that's what I want to hear more than a flatted third. Mm. Um, but I will say like the college thing was really interesting because learning the, the, that tradition. Um, and when I later I could, was able to get my technique together to a point where I could play high and fast and loud if I needed to. Um, became that really opened things up for me because that gave me all sorts of different ways to release tension. Mm -hmm. It didn't become a dogmatic way of playing sound, um, which is really important to me. The, the idea of not just having this 15 word language, but being able to speak many languages and mix them up and understand that if you go from a screaming sound to playing body and soul out of nowhere, it has a very interesting effect and not as pastiche, but just understanding um, the power of a straight tone after a bunch of crazy shit mm -hmm. or 
playing something that people recognize and letting it dissolve into something that is more like a human voice than it was like music. And that became the way that I started thinking, especially after college, Mm -hmm. because I had all this knowledge that I was dealing with, plus the way that I wanted to play. And really the next 10 years were just trying to figure out ways to move back and forth quickly Mm -hmm. and in a way that was meaningful. So collaging them, but like with impact? Or? Yeah, I'm not sure that I think of it as collage. I think, I think of it as taking the thread of an idea and unraveling or putting it back together mm-hmm. um, and then switching an idea. Like I don't necessarily think of going from sound to pitch as a collage thing. I think of it as this sound has this quality and the development of that is for me to go into this pitch mm-hmm. more than budding like up more of two of an organic uh, yeah, yeah. I, I have a hard time thinking in a collage way mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's it's difficult for me to make them relate in my brain enough to hear you a bunch of times solo you know we've done some work where you were playing solo in front of a, uh, on a tour with me and, mm-hmm. and things like this and I have to say one of the things that really impresses me is that every one of the performance performances you've done other than a tendency to start off acoustic and end with the amplifier that seems to be the only consistent parameter I mean yeah. the way that they begin where they go how they end I and mean, every one of them really has been quite different. Um, Do you go into a performance with a loose, let's say, set list of of events, so to speak, or is it more like a, a, to use a player example, Paul Rutherford approach where you walk on stage and that's what it is, you just kind of discover it out of the air almost? I mean, do you have a Um, plan? I think it's maybe somewhere between that. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a plan. Honestly, I, mm. in the cases where, for example, when I was playing f- with you and playing every night, the only thing was just being aware of what I played the night before mm-hmm. and not wanting to do that. I think a lot of that kind of stuff came out of understanding that the perception when you play extended technique things or if you play anything that is considered left of center on the horn... Um, the immediate perception, and it, it may be different in Chicago, but in New York, this is certainly the way it is still, is that you're the circus freak, mm-hmm. you know, and you're going to come out and you're going to do your bag of tricks and everybody's going to clap and that's all you can do. And mm-hmm. you have no, you know, you go trick A, B, C, D, and E, and it becomes just mannerisms. And that, that from the very beginning was a fear of mine, mm-hmm. especially watching like Herbie Robertson, mm-hmm. who's amazing, but in New York a lot of times is considered, oh, he, go, he d- goes up and does his five weird things mm-hmm. and that's great. Um, so the real purpose of trying to play differently every night is to 
force myself to deal with construction of pieces on the fly and to construct a piece mm -hmm. to really not to do um, as much as I love Paul Rutherford not to do just the kind of like stream of consciousness I'm here now I'm here now I'm here mm -hmm. but really to go back and say I, I know what I did here can I construct something out of it or is this going to be this kind of shape or is it going to be more episodic or is it going to be a large drone mm -hmm. and have all those things there so that anybody listening to it um, unless they're completely deaf is going to say, well, no, that's a guy making music with that language. Mm -hmm. It's not a bag of tricks. Mm -hmm. It's not just um, designed to get people to go, oh, wow, look what he can do. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's actually something that's got a depth and a, a, a substance to it and a, a consistency to it in the way that things are built. Mm -hmm. That's really important to me, more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and so doing something different every night means that I can exercise that faculty mm -hmm. and and learn how to do it better mm -hmm. and learn how to put something together better so that then if we're playing duo or I'm playing in a quintet, you can still transfer those things. So if they're playing swing behind you and there are changes, there's still a feeling that you've constructed something mm -hmm. instead of just throwing a mess of eighth notes at people, right, right. which to me is not very interesting. Right, right. You know? You mentioned uh, the feeling of playing in New York and, and part of that idea of using extended techniques and not wanting to be put into a category or whatever. Um, within the United States, anywhere, you know, there tends to be um, discussions of differences of the scene in Chicago and the scene in New York and like tendencies in those scenes, aesthetics in those scenes, and differences and, and similarities. I mean, having lived in the New York area and worked there for, you know, more than a dozen years um, and having worked with a bunch of musicians based in Chicago and coming here and playing, are there any general things that you notice that either are similar or quite different that make those scenes different from each other or contrast from each other? I think, I think you can do a lot of different things in Chicago and still be considered part of the community and mm -hmm. still have an interest in whatever the community is. Um, you can go to shows of all sorts of different things. You can play all sorts of different things and experiment and uh, still feel like you have a sense of belonging in the Chicago musical scene. Um, in New York, for me at least, uh, I've been very lucky um, to do as much as I have, but I don't there are many small pockets of scenes, none of which I belong to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I essentially stay at home and practice and work and do concerts, but I don't, I, you know, I'm not part of Mary Halverson's scene as much as I love all these people. It's like, I'm not part of that. I'm not part of the noise scene. I'm mm -hmm. not part of the new music scene. I'm not part of the straight ahead jazz scene, but I get to play with all those people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, that's a really conscious choice. Like I really, made that choice early on that mm -hmm. I just wanted to live in my own space and do whatever I wanted to do and never have to feel um, beholden to any set of aesthetics that belong to any groups. And when I come here, and maybe it's my role as an outsider here, but when I come here, I feel like that, that wouldn't be necessary. Mm -hmm. You can just be who you are and there's a feeling, of, and maybe it's because it's a smaller area, but I don't necessarily know that that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, but you feel like everybody's just interested in what you're doing 
and that then um, goes back into the community that um, and people learn from that and develop their own thing and then you pull that and mm -hmm. I think that's happening in New York now with uh, the generation that is coming up after me mm -hmm. um, where that's much more open but when I first came uh, I think everybody from my generation has pushed against that in one way or another um, and and everybody comes up with a different answer mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of the, the big difference for me is I, I I don't feel the the rigidity of of those um, aesthetic clicks. groups, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and it, you know I say that not not as a knock on the aesthetic groups. Everybody mm -hmm. deals with them in a different way. I, that's just the difference I've noticed. Mm -hmm. Pedro Costa, who runs a, a record label out of Portugal called Clean Feed, uh, who's put out records of ours, he said something interesting this spring when I was in Lisbon connected to this idea that he felt that one of the key differences between the scene in New York and Chicago was that in Chicago in general, the music that he heard coming out um, still had an affinity to the idea that you could play jazz. Yeah. Uh, and a new, in a broad sense of whatever that might be, like it's very subjective, but in his ear as an outsider, certainly to the United States, and knowing a lot about the music, he felt that that was like a viable, not really a question, like it filtered into the music that, let's say, drummers here tended to utilize things that had come out of the, the jazz history going into the 70s, and it was just normal. You know, mm -hmm. like that's, yeah, yeah. Whereas in New York, there tended to be an awkwardness about the idea of using jazz materials without, unless you were, you were deconstructing them or, or being using, cynical about yeah. them. And that this idea, it was like a disconnect. Like he felt that the, to put it more clearly, he felt that the lineage in this Chicago scene was still very connected to the jazz roots. Whereas in New York, it fe he felt that the more creative scene in New York, if we're talking about the creative mm -hmm. scenes, uh, had kind of been cut off from that yeah. and then was like rethinking it in ways that were more conceptual as opposed to just organic. Yeah. As someone living there, do you think that there's any accuracy to that? Or? I think there, there's accuracy to it. I also think it's pretty simplified. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. there are a lot of reasons why that is. Um, and there are a lot of political reasons mm -hmm. for that. I mean, in Chicago, you don't have Wynton Marcellus. Mm -hmm. You don't have Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. And these, you don't have the institutionalization of the jazz tradition. Mm. In New York, that's very present. And there is... Between and it, I mean, and it's geographical. You know, they talk about it all the time. There's uptown players that play jazz and they play in Lincoln Center and they, you know, play Cleopatra's Needle and you know all the standards and you play giant steps in every single key and that's that's your learning curve. That's what you do and that's the world you inhabit. And then there's the downtown players, which are really the Brooklyn players now, um, who for whatever reason have, they're, they're moving in a different direction from that and they do it in different ways. Um, and honestly, I couldn't, I could not tell you five uptown players off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. That's how, that's how different it is. Yeah. You know, I, I really, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you anybody that plays in the Lincoln Center Band and it's not because I don't like that music. It's just, I, I, I have no idea, are. man. Yeah. I have no yeah. idea. Um, and so I think now there's, we may be coming up to the end of it, but 
there was such a reaction to that, mm-hmm. um, beginning with Zorn and the fact that Zorn is really whether you like him or not, he was the he's the center of that scene. You know, you have to deal with Zorn's music if you're a downtime musician. You just there's no way you can deal with it by saying I hate it, but you have to deal with it. It's in reference to it, yeah. And and he, the way that he dealt with jazz set off a different attitude, I think. So that now what I see, and this is my own perception, but what I see a lot of times is that if someone wants to be a, playing jazz, and a lot of those people don't identify themselves as jazz musicians anymore either, which is another depth part of the depth of this conversation that I think Pedro's missing. Um, they have to be developing something, uh, an interest that has nothing to do with the jazz tradition. Mm-hmm. Because the jazz tradition there equates this institution that is on 72nd Street. It has nothing to do with the actual tradition of the music. So, you know, if someone's going to make a record, the most radical thing they can do, actually, is to play a record where they just swing their ass off for 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's like the most radical thing you can do. One of the reasons I think people hate mostly other people do the killing is besides all of their weirdness and irony and cynicism, they just swing their asses off for an hour. And that is that's one of the most inexcusable things to a lot of Mm. the downtown people. Um, my quintet has never played a big gig in New York. When we play in New York, like three people come and it's because that band just swings. That's what we do. We just swing. We play weird. We play the way we play, but we're swinging the whole time. And that is a problem. We're putting out a record of Wynton Marcellus's early music. That's a problem. That is politically radical. It shouldn't be. It's stupid. It's one of the dumbest things on earth, but it is politically radical there, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, that's the stuff that you're dealing with in New York. Plus you also have a lot of people that are coming into the downtown scene come by way of Zorn. And like I came to Zorn through George Lewis and Derek Bailey, and then from Zorn went out to Slayer and stuff like that that he was interested in, um, and noise bands and Jojo Takianagi and all this stuff. Most of the people involved in that scene came the other way. Mm-hmm. So they came through Jojo and all these people that, you know, Kijo Haini and, or, uh, Haino, and they came to Zorn and then through that went, Oh wait, he has this Herbie Nichols record or big gun down has these elements. And then they went out from that. So their relationship to jazz is not strong. Like, it's a it's a style, but they don't have something deep in their stomach that makes them want to have that feeling. Mm-hmm. So to, they don't care. You know, they don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point, like I said, that they don't think of themselves. Mm-hmm. As, you know, when we did the What is Jazz issue for Sound American, mm-hmm. most of those people, when asked point blank, do you think you're a jazz musician? said no. Mm-hmm. I've never thought I was a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. I don't. I actually don't want to be called a jazz musician. Yeah, yeah. So that's there's a lot of depth to it, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, the, that kind of conversation gets thrown around like Pedro, and and Pedro doesn't. You know, you're not involved in it, so how would you know? Right. But um, it's it's much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. There's actually just this weird schism between the worlds, um, and it's reactionary. It's, I, I don't think there's anything revolutionary about it. It's just everybody's reacting 
more to a set of personality, really one personality or two, mm -hmm. and an institution. Mm -hmm. And they've done it by setting up a different kind of institution that's looser and has its own dogmas and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in Chicago, it, again, it's more open mm -hmm. and people have, there's a uh, cross-pollination that doesn't happen. I'm sure there's politics here that I don't know or understand, but mm. my view from the outside is that there isn't something that's that deeply entrenched mm -hmm. as there is in New York. fascination with this sort of as an outsider uh, kind of a renaissance with the trumpet in the last decade or so and it's fascinating to me that when you look at aside from maybe an example like Bill Dixon who was investigating extended techniques in the trumpet pretty early for a variety of reasons uh, if you compare let's say the saxophone or drums or piano or guitar um, trombone. There's examples of people in the late 60s, certainly going into the 70s, like really breaking those instruments open and exploring non-conventional sounds uh, in the improvised music world. Um, and that intensity of, of a number of people working, maybe not in the same way, but driving towards similar types of goals, Suddenly on the trumpet, you know, as not participating, it, it mm -hmm. seems like, okay, you've got a Greg Kelly, you've got a Nate Woolley, you know, uh, you've got a Peter Evans, etc., uh, Axel Durner, all rethinking the trumpet in different ways and dealing with the instrument in a totally non-traditional sensibility in terms of what the sounds are, what, mm -hmm. what's happening on it. How do you perceive that as someone involved in that process? Like, do you see it as a renaissance or is it just a wild coincidence? Do you see it, like, because part of my question is why did the trumpet, if you go with that idea at all, why did the trumpet develop in this way in like 2000 as opposed to 1970 yeah. is a general curve. Mm -hmm. You follow what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think there are a couple things that happened around that and I think there are a couple myths that get brought up when when people ask about that because it mm -hmm. does get talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I, th from the technical standpoint, before I get to the things that I think people think happen, from the technical standpoint, um, all of a sudden you had players that had developed a phenomenal technique. Um, that was different from the typical jazz technique. Um, you learn you learn how to play the trumpet in in different ways, right? So, in the different cases, um, 
we all went through a certain process, but for whatever reason, the, the models that came down the jazz technical path were of less interest to three of us, at least in the States, than, than the other things around us. So with the example of Greg Kelly, he's never studied jazz. Um, he can't play, he doesn't know how to read a chord change. He doesn't know any of that stuff. I mean, he went to Peabody as a classical trumpet player and was interested in George Crumb, and that's how he got into the world that he's in now. Uh, Peter Evans just didn't, I mean, he did go through the thing, but he went through everything. Mm. You know, he just, it, it's like he ran out of stuff to do, so he had to, like, find new things to do because that's just who he is. Um, and my thing was all technically based. Like, I had to find new uh, new models and I just had never been I'd been always more attracted to Booker Little than I was to Clifford Brown so that's what where I came from and Axel when you talk to Axel he talks about Tony Fruscella mm -hmm. and Harry Beckett who sound weird as shit like mm -hmm. they're, they're not normal trumpet players um, the other thing is that it didn't and this is maybe starting with the myths it didn't come out of a vacuum mm -hmm. none of this stuff came out of a vacuum mm -hmm. like Herbie was around Toshinori Kondo was around uh, Paul Smoker was around, and those guys were, well, not Toshinori, but like Herb and Paul were really open to talking to anybody. Rob Blakesley in Portland, uh, Ron Miles, all these guys were playing on the periphery and were open to anybody that wanted to hang out with them. So you get people checking that stuff out, and then through that, maybe listening to Rafi Malik. And mm. um, strangely, the other myth is that everybody came out of Bill Dixon. Mm -hmm. No one came out of it. As far as I know, the three guys I mentioned, yeah. none of us have a relationship to Bill at all. Yeah. Um, I probably was the closest to having any influence from Bill, and I, I don't. I mean, I don't listen to those records. I didn't listen to those records. I think Peter and Greg, when I've talked to them, are openly anti everything Bill did. <laughs> so um, that... And that bothers me, and I've, I've tried to say it in more polite ways in the past, but then you're getting lumped in as a student of a person you have no interest in being a student of, mm -hmm. and you don't necessarily want to be related to some of the things that they represented. As beautiful as his music, I do believe his music is beautiful. I don't want to sound like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to sound like I didn't come out of it. Um, but other than that, I think it was just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. I think it was a coincidence of a lot of very quiet people that sat in rooms and tried to figure out new stuff for whatever reason. And then they all put out records in, like in the same year. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden that's a renaissance and this thing gets put on it. But um, I moved to New York and like played a solo in a big band and Oak Young Lee said, oh, have you ever heard Greg Kelly? And I never heard him. And then I was playing in another big band and I played a solo. And then Peter Evans stood up right next to me and played pretty much the same thing. And we had never met. I mean, it just, it happened. Mm -hmm. Everything was, um, and then after that, you know, then it's catch up of trying to pick up all this new stuff that everybody else came up with and seeing like, can I add this to my vocabulary? Does it make sense for me or doesn't it? Which is why I think it, there's not really like a, unified front of what that whatever that trumpet thing is mm -hmm. it's just five or six people 
that we're investigating in the same way, but they don't sound alike at all. Right, right. Um, so I think I think that's kind of the way that that has ended up being. And then there's there are other people that are doing things outside of that who, for whatever reason, didn't get the same attention. You know, honestly, there, it could have been Axel, Greg, uh, Franz, and me, and we would be just like Herb and Paul and those guys had Peter not come along. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we have to give him a lot of credit because he came along and led legitimacy to all that stuff because he could turn around and play like Freddie Hubbard. Mm-hmm. And so that was radical but safe to a lot of people. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, he's not just a weirdo. He can also really play. Right, right. Um, and so then that allowed people to feel safe talking about us for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. transferred. I wasn't just like this yeah. bag of tricks you're talking about. Yeah, it was yeah, like, it wasn't. Oh, and there's these weird endeavor. guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the Linda Marsalis uh, tribute or whatever band it, mm-hmm. it was. I remember reading about it at the time and I was like, damn, I wish I was in, in, in New York and could see that. Can you tell us a bit more about the, the idea behind it? What were you exactly thinking? Um, really, the thing for me is I, I got those records early. It's based on three records. It's based on Black Coats from the Underground, Wynn Marsalis, and J Moon three earlier records of his. Um, and my dad gave me those records. I, was, I think I was 11 or 12. And I, I knew about jazz at that time. Like I'd listened to, I'd seen Stan Getz live and I'd seen Dizzy and I knew all this stuff. Um, but I heard those records and I was like, this is, this is like nothing I've ever heard. Like these guys are changing the way people play jazz. Now, granted, I hadn't heard Ornette. I hadn't heard Coulter, you know, like I hadn't heard that thing. But from the straight ahead point of view, they were changing the way people dealt with time and the way they were dealing with harmony, but it still swung. And I was like, man, this is really great. The 11 year old me was saying that um, in whatever way I said it to myself at 11. <laughs> but I was really, really interested in those records um, such that you know, when the new record came out, I was there that day and I bought it and I was like, can't wait to hear what this guy's gonna do next. And then, as we all know, he decided to take a different path. Fine, it's totally cool. But there's part of me that always thought, that always felt like it was an opportunity wasted in a way. And part of it is my own nostalgia for it. Um, that, but that had they continued along that trajectory, it could have been a very inter- it could have blossomed into a very interesting thing. Um, and so to take those tunes, um, not in a way that we're poking fun at them or we're trying to deconstruct them, but instead saying, well, what, had hap- what would have happened if this music had happened at a time when you had players with the same um, attitudes they have now, 20, 30 years later, and have the, a different skill set than they had in the 80s and a different way of looking at tradition and the politics had changed. Um, 
what would ha what would the music sound like then so i rewrote the music and it has a lot more freedom and i'll say uh my quintet those guys approached it with no sense of irony they approached it very seriously but not as an homage like they just really wanted to play the way they play on that music um in a way that was respectful to that music I, not none of this has anything to do with Wynton Marcellus, the human being. It, it does to a certain extent, of course, because he made the music, but none of us went into it, A, trying to pay homage to Wynton Marcellus, the man, um, and none of us came into it having any fear of Wynton Marcellus, the man. Like, it was the last thing on our minds. We just liked those tunes, and so we decided to play it. And then there's been periods within it where I've had to defend that and it's become more political. Um, but I'm hoping now that that's died down and when the record comes out, it's just going to be a record of music. Because that's, that's actually the political statement is it's just a fucking record of music. You know, we made it because we liked it and hopefully people will listen to it because they like it. But I have n less than 0% interest in making political music. I, I'm just not that person. So we'll see what happens all that being said that's my big diatribe which i'll immediately get creamed for when it comes out i'm i mean i'm just kind of laying in wait um i feel like the guys in the quintet are already kind of like planning on being vac on vacation <laughs> comes out i i'm pretty sure i'll be off facebook by the time that record comes on so we'll, we'll see what happens but yeah i mean it really is just a chance it's material you know it's i i think those records are beautiful still they're incredible, man. Everybody plays their butt off. They're raw. They're not too polished. The tunes are great, you know. So we wanted to do them. Any other questions? Anything else? Anything else? Well, I have one more question. Okay. Then, in that case, um, I was curious because you work in so many different fields and work with different kinds of composers and different kinds of composed music. Uh, recently, you did a big project with Anthony Braxton, and you've worked for a long time with, uh, I'm just going to get her name right, Elian uh, Radig, yeah. and obviously a very different kind of composer. And I was just wondering, do you approach the work of other people, realizing other people's work, and having your own personality in it, obviously, but do you think of... I mean, like, if you're playing Braxton's music, he's a, such a figure and and she's a figure mm. and there's like i guess having not done it let's say i would feel i guess personally some kind of responsibility to do that work at the highest level to realize what they're trying to do but also then you're in it yeah and how do you think about that or do you not consider it you just go well into i think it? Or, and also, sorry to interrupt, but is, is there a difference in that, like with Braxton, there's composed elements and open elements of improvisation with Radig, maybe it's more... It's completely composed. composed. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I think with those two people particularly, it's about balancing on a very thin line between where the composer's contribution ends and their performer's contribution begins mm -hmm. and that's not the case with a lot of with you know the majority of composers or the majority that I've dealt with usually it's kind of like you do it this way and you read the ink um, and you your personality should be subsumed mm -hmm. um, with Anthony 
I think his musical thing is so strong. And when I first started playing his music with him, there definitely was that feeling that I need to play within a tradition and within a style. And the the thing I noticed was the more I tried to do that, the less successful the music was. Mm. And I think the I, it's hard for me to speak for him, but my take on what he's doing is that he sets up a music that is really best realized when you're yourself within it. Um, and that's, you know, when we think of the great bands, like the band with Kenny Wheeler, the band with George Lewis, or with Marilyn Crispell, or the band with like Taylor Hobynum and Mary Halverson, the reason that those are so beautiful and so um, they sound so correct to my ears is because, you know, in the trio, Taylor sounds like Taylor. He doesn't sound like Kenny Wheeler. He doesn't try and sound like Wadada Leo Smith. He sounds like Taylor. But he plays Anthony's music um, in a respectful way, but also the way Taylor would play that music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been involved in Braxton things where there are people really trying to make it sound like it is a Braxton thing. And it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It sounds best when they're just playing his music the way they play. In the case of Elian, she doesn't write any music down. I mean, there, she has never written down a piece of music. Um, all of her pieces are taught to you one-on-one um, by ear and then you play them and then she tweaks them and then you play them and she tweaks them and you play them and then at a certain point she says okay that's the piece um, now as you perform it it changes because every night it's different that this piece uh, for people that haven't heard it is for solo trumpet and it's very uh, quiet minimalist piece that has to do with manipulating the overtones so in every different room, it's a different piece because you have to play the room. Mm. Your chops are working in a different way every night. So it changes. But the real thing is finding how far you can push before it's not her piece anymore. Mm. And that's the tricky thing. Um, that's actually, to me, the hardest thing about playing her pieces. or her pe- Yeah, the two pieces I've played at first. Is that they they also come very much out of my solo language. So it would be very easy for me to just kind of bullshit it and go, yeah, 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 this is this Ilion Radik Mm -hmm. piece and then play a solo piece. But then that's not the peak. That's not it. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, in that stuff, I actually subsume my personality even more, more than I would because you're trying to control something that's already your comfortable language Mm -hmm. and find all the micro adjustments that make it her language right, right. and live within that. Mm-hmm. And that's different from Braxton because you're really playing your language or you're playing his music through the lens of your language. And mm-hmm. it's a very different thing. Like that, that, um, that fine line doesn't exist so much with, with Anthony, I think.